0: Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership.
1: The toughest things I've gone through in pro football and the fact that I didn't get to be Joe Montana, you know, Super Bowl champion uh, or Jack Kemp Jr. Basically those things crushed me to seek a better answer for who I am and a better purpose for the the outcomes and circumstances of my life than just achieving
2: a better purpose than just achieving that's the goal we exhort listeners to every week on this show as we offer insight and inspiration for you to lead a life of significance it's not an easy journey and it can be particularly difficult When you grow up feeling like you've got really, really big shoes to fill. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. Today's guest is someone who knows the reality of what I just described really well. Jeff Kemp is the son of American Football League champion and MVP Jack Kemp. The American Football League is the old AFL. And Jack Kemp didn't just leave a legacy on the football field. He left one in public service and in politics, too, as a cabinet secretary, presidential candidate, and vice presidential nominee. His son Jeff's achievements on the gridiron were no match for his dad's. In his more than a decade in the NFL, Jeff Kemp was rarely a starter and more than once released, traded, passed over. But as he explains in this conversation with Warwick, He weathered the blitzes on and off the field to find his true purpose, helping others huddle up to build stronger marriages, more faith-filled lives, and deeper relationships at home and at the office. Well,
0: Jeff, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I loved reading your book, uh, Facing the Blitz. Definitely found some Common themes, you know, different language uh, in terms of, as we talk about, bouncing back from crucibles, and as you talk about, just overcoming blitzes, uh, thinking differently. So I love that whole theme. It's funny when, typically when we have a guest on, we <laughs> we often ask them, tell us about your family. Well, you've got one impressive family. Obviously, you and Stacy and your you know, three boys, uh, but just you have an, a pretty a very famous dad, Jack Kemp, who even in Australia, I mean, I'd heard of him there, and I've lived in the US since the early 90s. And as I was refreshing my memory about your dad, I could relate because I come from a prominent family in Australia, five generations of very prominent people of which I'm uh, uh, not in their league at all of any of the five that came before me, which we can talk about in a bit if it's helpful. But um, I'd just love to hear your perspective, because, uh, you know, a lot of people will know about Jack Kemp, but just to refresh people's memory, kind of looking it up here, um, obviously I knew a lot of this, but uh, your dad, as you know, uh, played 13 seasons in pro football, he was AFC uh, quarterback of the winning team in 64, 65, I guess before the merger happened, and Super Bowl uh, represented Buffalo for nine terms in Congress housing secretary under President George H.W. Bush, Bob Dole's running mate for vice president in in 96, ran for Republican nomination in in 88. That's some huge shoes to fill. So talk about growing up as the son of, uh, of Jack Kemp when you're trying to find your own way in life and identity. And I mean, that's, you know, everybody loved Jack Kemp. Everybody admired him, irrespective of what side of the aisle they're on so talk a bit about how it was like growing up in that kind of family
1: i'm actually looking through my phone to find a picture of this <laughs> uh, since there may be some folks who don't remember uh, jack but uh, <laughs> i'll, I'll get a picture i just found some here's one of dad and me on after a rams game oh wow came out to all my games awesome. in california um, I never would have made it in pro football without his encouragement. I was a starter one time out of 20 years at the beginning of the season in my whole life. Okay, one time out of 20 seasons. I was a backup most of the time, but I still made it 11 years in the NFL because I had this voice in my head saying, you're a camp, be a leader. You're a camp, be a leader. Your day, day's going to come. I believe in you. It's going to happen. God has a plan. You're in your right place. Hey, you played great today. Dad, I didn't even get in the game. Oh, I know. You're <laughs> really throwing well. <laughs> That's the kind of dad I had. Let me show you another picture. Here's me on the airplane, the Buffalo Bills team flight with my dad sitting in his lap.
0: How old are you there? Like about four or yeah, something? Yeah, four or five. You didn't get to go on the yeah. flights
1: normally. I might have just jumped on the plane, gotten to sit down and then take off. I don't know. Yeah. But we really were blessed in a huge way. Here's a picture of me as the little toe head. And my dad, can you do you know that other guy in the picture with
0: him? Yeah, Ronald Reagan. Wow, my wow. gosh. that's uh, you, you, Your dad looks young there. Was that before Reagan was president? Oh, yeah, was, that he was um, governor.
1: My dad worked for Reagan in, in California in the off-season. Right when he was governor of 1967. California. 1967 off-season. Yeah. We moved out there for three months. Let me give you the family thing, because you wisely yeah. and graciously opened this interview by asking me the question about, who am I and whom am I related to? And mm-hmm. I think you and I both know quite well from experience, from families of achievement, we are not our pedigree. We are not our performance. We are not our bank account. We are not our title. Mm-hmm. We aren't our job. Mm-hmm. We aren't all the stuff we accomplish. We are amazing, beloved creatures of God who He created. And we have the opportunity for a relationship, or we can skip out on that, which many people in the world do. And secondly, we're the son or daughter of a man and woman. Uh, we're the sister or brother of people. Relationships are what shape us. Today, I'm the husband of Stacy. I'm the father of four sons, not three. Um, oh. <laughs> okay. and, and, and I have four daughters-in-law and five grandkids. So my identity is related to family, both spiritual family, which is way better than performing because I promise you, football players get cut and then they would lose their identity if they were football players. And uh, I don't lose my identity as Stacy's husband. I don't lose my identity as a a son that God loves. Or ever will I lose my identity as Jack and Joanne's son. The interesting thing about that is as good as my dad was at encouraging and loving unconditionally and not making it about me being first string or anything like that, I put my own pressure on myself that I was Mm -hmm. gonna be a great leader like my dad told me I would be. And I figured a great leader must be an all pro quarterback in the NFL and win championships and then become a great speaker and then become a statesman and run for president by the time you're 50 years old. That's kind of hard to live up to all that. (laughs) And he didn't put all that on me, Warwick. Gary, he didn't put pressure on me for that. But we humans are insecure. And we're driven to feel good about ourselves. And we want to be popular. And so I put my own pressure on myself that I got to really rise and achieve a lot. And uh, I didn't get to go to University of Southern California or Stanford or Notre Dame. Best college I could go to for football was Dartmouth. Now, it happened to be great for academics, so it opened two pathways. But my mom was the really encouraging, personal, relational, faith-expressing force in the family. My dad was the hyper-encouraging, best encourager I've ever known in the world, uh, visionary, uh, championing, uh, vision casting, optimistic, big picture faith, but he didn't really have the transparency and vulnerability and, and honesty and sharing his weaknesses and stuff like that. So I didn't really pick that up from, from my dad as much as from my mom. And, and mostly I picked up that from uh, my relationship with God during the years I played pro football and my wife, who she's got a fabulous, cool, committed relationship to, to God and she helps me be a better person. Although she's kind of like sandpaper. She keeps rubbing off the spots of me that are uh, (laughs) a little bit obnoxious. So I have two sisters and a little brother younger than me. I was the oldest. I married Stacy, um, I met her my first summer in California as a free agent with the Rams. And then we got married right after our second season. She's the only girl I dated out there. We knew God brought us together. We have incredibly different personalities in every single way except dominant leadership. She's a 99 dominant leader, and I'm a 97, which bugs me because I'm competitive, and she beat me, doesn't it.
0: <laughs> so we got two
1: totally different people, this introvert, organized, disciplined, black and white, right and wrong, sequential person, and then there's me, the opposite of all that. and i'm the feeler and she's the thinker it's kind of like i'm the girl in the equation and she's the guy but we're dominant (laughs) leaders so our marriage has had a lot of friction but great commitment and that has reshaped us both it's made us turn to god because we needed some help to keep us glued together that we couldn't have done on our own and we've turned to mentors coaching conferences classes books and then we ended up helping other couples because we needed so much help so that's that's the journey. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 A great family, yeah. a dad with a big pedigree, and I—I I finally figured out that I don't need to be a famous success. I just need to be faithful. And right,
0: you—you mm-hmm. you don't need to be Jack Kemp. I don't need to be Jack Kemp. I'm to be, be, be Being Jeff Kemp is fine.
1: Yep.
0: You know, it's interesting. You know, it sounds like your dad had <laughs> a, a great heart and wasn't trying to push you into anything. But as you say, when he's saying. You know, being a camp means being a leader. I know you can do it. You did great. You, you can be all that you all that you want to be. Exactly. He might not have meant that, but you could interpret that as being, okay, so if I'm not a starting quarterback and win a Super Bowl and at least be a member of Congress, maybe a Saturday. Yeah, come on. I'm not being a camp. I'm not being a leader. That probably read, wasn't what he right. intended. I
1: filled in all the blanks <laughs> and I exaggerated it and created a higher expectation for myself even than he set out. But it was natural that I did so because he was so hyper encouraging and leadership to him was, you know, let's work with Reagan to cut a tax rate and energize the whole world economy. Uh, Let's win two championships in a row with the Buffalo Bills. You know, that was the benchmark.
0: Right. It's funny. Do you ever think of saying, Dad, I love your encouraging. Can you dial it down a little bit? (laughs) No,
1: I didn't. I didn't because – Back then, I loved it, and I didn't know the performance mentality that I would assign to it that would make the weakest parts of me show up. The weakest parts of me is my vanity, my pride, my ego, my comparison to others, my impatience. But at the same time, that journey of seeing all that stuff and ending up a backup quarterback usually, getting traded, getting cut, getting booed in my big opportunity with the Seahawks in 1988 when I thought my career was going to flourish and take off and it happened exactly the opposite all of those things, the crucible okay, I, I don't think you understand work, but the real word is blitz, you're supposed to call those things blitzes <laughs> <How are you laughs> I don't know where you came up with this you know, melting the gold and silver crucible
0: Yeah, no, you,
1: but blitzes. Blitz, these yeah, are blitzes a, they're I'm not just danger, they are what
0: are they? <laughs> they're blitzers. They're, well, beyond danger they're also what? Uh, opportunity. Painful? Opportunity. opportunity, right, right, right. Sorry, I, I hear what you're saying. That's yeah, what yeah. a
1: crisis
0: is. Well, and, and I love that. It's uh, just parenthetically, one of the things you have in your book is um, these, uh, the two Chinese characters yeah. saying the Chinese character for crisis combines danger and opportunity. Yeah, show us That's fascinating that a crisis can be both. I love that.
1: Do you have the picture right there? Can you show it?
0: Yeah, uh, I'll try. I'll, if you find uh, see if I can. Uh,
1: there it is. It's simple. If
0: people see that. Okay, at least so. Uh, it's uh, two Chinese symbols. Uh, Got it. Yep. That's the, so, that, that is the
1: way in Chinese, they represent yeah. the word and concept crisis. And the crucible right. is a crisis. The blitz is a crisis. It's not just danger. It's also opportunity. What I was saying was, the toughest things I've gone through in pro football and the fact that I didn't get to be Joe Montana, you know, Super Bowl champion, uh, or Jack Kemp Jr. Basically, those things crushed me to seek a better answer for who I am mm. and a better purpose for the the outcomes and circumstances of my life than just achieving.
0: Yeah, I want to focus here in a second on sort of one key crucible you talk about. I think it was the '88-49, the Seahawks game, but just. Some, you know, listeners will know, but I think it's sort a helpful. You know, I couldn't have grown up in a more different background. I'm not particularly athletic. I'm not terrible. But, you know, in Australia, at least in Sydney, we play rugby. And most of the rest of the country, they play Aussie rules, which they call footy there, which you kind of got to be uh, basically the size of a um, basketball player, but, uh, you know, maybe with the strength of a football player. It's, gonna it's a be great sport. It's strange. Uh, and you're going to be very fast. So, um but uh, yeah, I mean, as listeners will know, I grew up in a large family media business. I was the fifth generation um, that was started by a very strong person of faith, as strong a businessman for Christ as I think I've ever heard of. He founded a great business, a wonderful husband, great dad. His employees loved him, elder at church. Every aspect of his life wow. was done well. Yeah. So that is sort of an ama- that the benchmark there. Is high. really high, and and then succeeding generations, faith wasn't quite as important. But by way of comparison, um, my dad was knighted, he had the same name as I, I do, he was Sawarik Fairfax. There were three knighthoods in a row, and this kind of knighthood you have to earn it, so it's not quite like being three Super Bowl champions in a row, but it's a little bit like somebody that's achieved greatness and prominence three in a row, and obviously. You know, I wasn't knighted. They don't do that anymore. It's a bit too uh, English royal family these days and I wouldn't have earned it. But they were all greatly admired and respected by the community. Uh, My dad oversaw a company going from one newspaper or a few newspapers to TV, you know, radio, magazines, a huge company. And what did I do? I was the Fairfax that kind of destroyed 150 years of, of family history. And so, you know, my Wikipedia entry, and I do have one, it's the young, hot-headed kid that could have had it all and blew it. It's kind of like, you know, through the uh, the game-losing interception in the big game. You know, that's, you know, what you're forever remembered for. So, yeah, I get the whole, for me and my identity, can't be in just being a Fairfax because, right. you know, I, I can't compete with the legacy of five generations of, of great, great men. So I kind of get it on one level, even though we're very different. But talk a bit about, one of the key points in your career was that 49ers Seahawks game where you're playing for the Seahawks. And, okay. yeah, I, you know, that I, I love the incident in, in the book. I mean, you know, you you throw into your buddy, Steve Largent, and
1: he somehow it. he drops yeah. a pass. I'll, I'll set yes. it up this way. I, I had uh, <laughs> five years with the Rams as a free agent. Wasn't even supposed to make it. Started for them in 84, took us to the playoffs. They wanted someone more flashy and pedigreed, maybe taller. And so they got someone new. And then I got traded to the Niners. And that looked like a dead end. Be stuck behind Joe Montana your whole career. But he got hurt right away. And I got coached by Bill Walsh and Mike Holmgren, got to throw to Jerry Rice and had the best season of my life in 86. And we went to the playoffs, but I was hurt. Montana got better. Uh, they brought in Steve Young, and somehow I didn't beat out those two Hall of Famers. Uh, yeah. hmm. Anyway, so they traded me. They said, thanks, Jeff. You helped us get to the playoffs, but we don't need you. Traded me to Seattle. So I was on the rise. I was getting good in my career. And uh, I spent a year on the bench backing up David Craig, and then I had the chance to start after an injury of his in 88. And we were playing the Niners uh, in Seattle. And I had prepared so well. I was so hyper disciplined on that week, uh, to know my game plan to throw extra passes after practice. And I was very confident. I was spiritually really plugged in to make sure that I gave God everything. So he might bless me. He doesn't work like that. He's not a rabbit. <laughs> but, but I, I was uh, covering all my bases. And uh, I walked out of the pregame meal on Sunday morning, four hours before the game, and a, a coach put his arm around me an offensive coach. And this is kind of rare this level of encouragement. And he said, Jeff, I just want to let you know, look in me in the eyes. I've been waiting for the day that you would be the Seahawk quarterback. This is gonna be awesome. That was mm-hmm. as big an encouragement as my dad had given me, right? And I felt so validated, so valued, so encouraged, so pumped, I was ready to have the world's best game, lead us to victory, take us to the playoffs, you know, win a Super Bowl, and really launch my career. It wasn't pure ambition, but it was adrenaline to be the best you can be. And this was the moment, it was coming. Anyway, the game started, and the first pass of the game was to Steve Largent. I I hit him perfectly between two defenders on a slant route, and uh, he dropped it. Steve Largent, Hall of Fame, unbelievable. The guy's perfect. He (laughs) drops the ball on my first pass to him on my my big game. And And, and he's a good friend of yours. He's a really good friend of mine. Yeah, we're super close. (laughs) And uh, after that. Steve didn't make any mistakes, but the game did not go well for the Seahawks. Uh, We were getting beat on defense and on offense. I was playing very, very poorly. Nothing was really open. Nothing was working. And uh, gosh, I had only four completions in the first half. And three of them were to the 49ers, not my team. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I- I'd thrown two corner routes that were intercepted and a Hail Mary at the end of the half that was intercepted. And I walked off the field expecting to get benched because this is pro football, not, you know, Pop Warner. And they pay you to play well. And I wasn't. But I had a clear idea of one of the reasons for the interceptions was they were styming our tight end. He wasn't getting down the middle. They were killing him at the line of scrimmage, blocking him. And so I was going to talk to that encouraging coach who put his arm around me. And I was going to say, coach, what if we move the tight end in motion, got him off the line freely, he could split the two safeties, and we'd keep them honest on those corner routes that I've been messing up on. Well, I walked up to him two feet away. And Gary, I looked at him and I said, coach, and he turned his back 180 degrees. Mm. And he walked over and got another quarterback, put his hand on his shoulder and was gonna put him in the game. This made sense. I understood the you know, benching, Jeff. And I kind of expected it. I didn't want it. I knew I could play way, way, way better than that. And that's not the real me. You know, I have the Jack Kemp never give in, never give in, never give in, Churchill attitude. Huh. But I didn't get to say a word to that coach for the rest of the game. Other than to call plays in to, to the, the new quarterback Kelly and to encourage him. That coach didn't say a word to me during the game, after the game, Monday in films, he critiqued me as he should, but he didn't say a word personally to me. For a month, we were out of relationship. I'd say hi, and he'd kind of veer around me and and not even look at me anymore. Basically, he's not a jerk. And I'm not telling this story because he's a jerk. Basically, we live in a conditional performance-based world. Mm. And the epitome of it is the NFL, the acronym NFL might stand for not for long. If you don't perform, you won't be here for very long. Right. Okay, what have you done for me lately? Right. So, this coach thought he could motivate me with a real personal, you know, almost loving encouragement. And I feel like he probably meant a lot of it. But the minute I didn't perform and let him down, he was on to the next hope. Mm. And he was feeling that same conditionality that same performance basis from his head coach who'd get rid of him just as quick. If he did as badly as I, and he feels it from the owner and he feels it from Madison Avenue and wall street and and this conditional performance-based value system that I got caught up in uh, and benched from first string to third string in one half, my big shot with the Seahawks was gone. I hardly got in the field for a number of years until 1991, my last season, when I got to play again. Um, all this was gone in a matter of seconds because Did of this. The, feel
0: like this feel like a turning point that game.
1: Uh, it was a turning point in my like, career in Seattle for the negative. There've been yeah. a lot of expectations and hope, and I had a lot of confidence. And all of a sudden, now I'm just a good, solid, dependable backup who's played in the league, and we can count on him. We'll try to replace him with some other guys. We haven't found anyone better, but he can still be our backup, but he's not our starter. That's how my career went in Seattle. And I handled that work by persevering, still preparing, hoping I'd get to play, but I also put a lot of effort into being a best teammate I could. And I helped as many guys on the team as I could be good athletes, and I helped them be better husbands and better men and better dads. Steve Largent and I and Eugene Robinson led the team um, chapel and the Bible study My wife and I invited couples over to our house, dating couples and married couples to learn about marriage and relationships because we were learning about it. And then I used the off seasons uh, to invest in the community to make the world better. The way you talk about using crucibles to get other centered purpose to make the world better. I started doing that kind of thing. And that's what set me up for post football, having a mission to strengthen fatherhood, marriage and families. So, yeah, it was a turning point.
0: Yeah, how did you deal with the whole identity issue? Because obviously, as you've said, you know, your dad was sort of, amongst other things, Hall of Fame quarterback. And people think of you as a good, solid backup. You had this shining moment or potential, and it didn't work out too yeah. well. how did you deal with the whole identity of my life isn't going the way I had hoped it would? You, it seemed like you've handled it as well as you, you could in the sense of helping others. Mantoring. I mean, you weren't just sulking yeah. and sitting at home. I mean, to the outside world, it's like Jeff Kemp's handling this amazingly. Yeah. But what was going on inside?
1: It's funny. Uh the Seattle newspaper did an interview with me several weeks after I'd been benched from first string to third. And they were asking, How am I doing? How am I handling it? And they checked with some teammates and saw that I wasn't hanging my head and you know, I wasn't mm. going out to the bar and drinking myself silly. I wasn't down talking the other quarterback. I was a help. And so we had this long interview, and uh, I answered all this this reporter's questions, and she wrote a really long and and mostly nice article, and it was very complimentary of me, but it finished with this line. And I I shared basically a lot about my identity isn't in football. It's in my relationship with God, being a husband and a dad, um, and that anchors me. So anyway, she, she ends up writing, Jeff Kemp will survive. He's a survivor because of his great faith. Faith in himself and faith in his abilities. Mm. She completely missed the point. <laughs> I do not have faith in myself. My character's flawed. I wanted right. to be the starter. I was pissed. I wasn't right. happy. I had a couple of nights where I cried on my apartment carpet floor, not bawling, but kind of sniffling male cry with my wife as I explained to her how much it hurt to be benched and forgotten and rejected. And I even told her, you know, one of the things that bothers me most is not only that I'm, I'm benched, but that it bothers me so much. I thought I was a stronger person of faith than this.
2: Right. I want to jump in here and say to the listener, you're probably not an NFL quarterback. You probably weren't an NFL quarterback. You probably weren't the fifth generation heir to a uh, multi-billion dollar media dynasty. But what Jeff just described, the emotions of a crucible, the emotions of a blitz, of getting sacked, of getting knocked off balance, those emotions are legit and the same in what you're going through right now. And Warwick, I know you've talked before. I mean, having editorial cartoons you know, done about you after the takeover failed. That was an emotionally trying time. And that's a real thing for anybody who goes through any crucible of any stripe. Fair? Oh,
0: absolutely. That's funny. Um,
1: Thanks, Gary. Yeah.
0: I mean, obviously, Jeff, you wouldn't be familiar with it, but you never want to have editorial cartoons done on you. I mean, there was one that says, how do you start a small business? Give Warwick Fairfax a big one. I mean, there mm-hmm. was some... Uh, Another one had me of uh, looking like sort of Genghis Khan, sort of Mongol kind of raiders. And here's, you know, young Warwick uh, destroying what took 150 years to build. And it was uh, pretty brutal. So, yeah, for me, um, yeah, I had, you know, become a believer before this whole takeover thing. But feeling like I'd let down my dad and my great-great-grandfather, John Fairfax, who founded it and, you know... uh, caused turmoil for a few thousand employees and um, certainly wasn't uh, some family members who were unhappy happy with me. It was like, I was pretty down for most of the night. He said, like, how could I be so stupid? It, I'm, I have an Oxford degree. Well, I also have a Harvard MBA. In theory, I'm, I shouldn't be that dumb. That's
1: your problem. You went to Harvard <laughs> instead of Harvard. There you go. Yeah, if, it all traces back to that huge mistake. Go.
0: If I'd gone to Dartmouth's <laughs> talk school of business, life would have been better. Absolutely. But, hey, let me
1: say this right now. Please. Gary, you teamed it up. Warwick, you've felt it. And every person out there has been blitzed. Right. They've been cut. They've been rejected. They went to junior high. They know what it's like to be on the losing mm. end of that conditional performance-based value system, making fun of your pimples or your size or your voice or whatever. Everyone goes through crucibles. Yep. I want to remind people. You want to remind people. Gary wants to remind people. You are not alone. Others have been in it before. And the worst thing you can do is hide your emotions from other people. Hide your pain. Drown it or, and self-medicate it or pretend it didn't happen. The worst thing you can do is say, I'm a victim. It's all about other people. Because you'll never grow if you don't look at what your part in it was, which it wasn't, I'm the worst guy in the world. I deserved to be benched or I, yeah. I deserved to have cartoons against me. No, but you know what? There's lessons that I learned. And you have to accept your own personal responsibility. Maybe it was a divorce you went through. You've been thinking it was 90% her. Your math is probably off. Okay. Maybe you were cut or sacked or benched or fired by some company. And you think that was the worst manager, the worst CEO ever. Maybe they weren't that perfect, but there might be something you can learn.
0: Absolutely. So All I'm saying
1: is embrace the crucible, embrace the blitz, get honest with God and honest with other people about it and learn everything you can about yourself and what life is truly about. Cause your life is not about your win loss record, your statistics, your bank account, the applause of the world, how many Twitter followers you have. That is pretty much a bunch of BS. And it'll take you down a wrong road. You'll lose your identity. Living for image and living to gain and earn your identity is a very losing equation. I'd say explore everything you can learn about the blitz you've gone through, the crucible you're in, share openly with a few trusted mentors and people, and then find out if there's a possible solution by a relationship with God who loves you unconditionally and actually uses blitz and crucibles to turn bad things to good. In fact, all of history, Warwick, I think, hinges on one one date, the date that God came to earth in the person of a man. And he told everyone, I am going to die on a cross, and I'll be buried and gone for three days, but then I'm going to raise from the dead. And 500 people saw him because he actually did it. There's no religious leader or person in history who's done this. And then he went back to his father in heaven and said, I will return again. Well, basically, no one had a career that looked as good as Jesus's and turned out as bad as his. His number one guy, the treasurer, betrayed him. Right. Okay, his new number one guy, Peter, he denied him three times. Right. Every one of the guys scattered. They couldn't even stay awake with him and pray with him in that garden the night before he was going to get killed. They all left. They all left. The world mocked him. The Jewish leaders. He practiced Judaism better than them, but they said he 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 was uh, a fraud. He was the actual answer that they were supposed to believe in. And I love Jewish people. I love Israel. I love the Jewish faith. My Christian faith is stemming from Judaism. It's the same God. I just believe the Messiah has come. And that is kind of God's plan was to take a blitz in Jesus, make it look terrible, and then turn it around for good. That's God's formula. Look at all the Bible stories. That guy, Joseph, man, there was a dude named Lazarus who Jesus was supposed to heal, but he let him die and stay in the tomb four days so that he could actually prove that he gives life instead of just heal sicknesses. So what is are God's way. I'd say turn to God, be honest, and let your blitz become God's blessing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you. I want to shift to uh, lift here in a moment, which, you know, we'll unpack what you'll unpack, but I just want listeners to hear what Jeff is saying. You said a number of profound things, is take responsibility for what happened in your blitz or your crucible. And yeah, I spent a lot of years, in fact, a lot of the book that'll come out next year on Crucible Leadership talks about that, thinking, you know, I, I was on this crusade, you know, restore the company to the ideals of the founder, have it be well run. I was so convinced in the mission, even though it was more an inherited one, that I wasn't really listening to advice. Though I had, uh, it was very biblical, actually, um, I had good advisors and bad advisors. I listened to the bad ones and ignored the good ones. In fact, there's a Bible story uh, Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon. And yeah. uh, he could have listened to his dad's advisors. Solomon was meant to be the wisest person that ever lived. He ignored his dad's advisors, and he went with his buddies, his young guys. He said, guys. yeah, you know, persecute people, you know, do whatever it takes, and led to the split of Israel, and um, bad things happened from there. You know what? So, what are, that,
1: that principle yeah. is, even though you are um, well-educated, and you had noble goals, mm-hmm. at the root, wouldn't you say the problem probably was the, the hinge point between pride and humility?
0: Well, yeah. And it was also, as I talk about, I was living not even my dad's vision, the founder's vision. In your world, to be like trying to be Jack Kemp. Well, I was trying to be John Fairfax, the founder. But yeah. yeah, I mean, taking responsibility. And then as you put it, I mean, similar for me, you know, even though I was a believer, I had to learn that God loved me unconditionally. He didn't need Fairfax Media and all of that. If he'd wanted to work out, he would have, despite my mistakes. So that sense of God's unconditional love was the key point of me coming back. But I want to transition here a bit because I want to make sure I get to some of these key principles in your book. I love this phrase, lift, that life is for transformation, that I think you mentioned that your dad modeled and and preached. And then you've got these three, I guess... um, pillars in your book of take a long-term view, be willing to change, reach out to others. So talk about just those three concepts and how it's sort of anchored in this whole concept of lift of life is for transformation.
1: Yeah, so uh, Bill Bennett, who worked with dad in the cabinet for President Bush, uh, the first President Bush, uh, described dad after he passed away as lift. Wherever he went, whatever the issue, whatever the audience, no matter the situation, Jack Kemp brought lift. A sunny, optimistic disposition that we can make the world better. We can turn bad to good. That's the way he was with me. But I agree with that sentiment, and I love the word lift, kind of like the the aerodynamics of a wing that takes a plane up in the air um, when it's moving, but not when it's not moving. (laughs) Secondly, there's an acronym. Life is for transformation. Transformation from less good to better, from proud to humble. From selfish to unselfish, from me to us, Um, from racist to we're all equal, from a lack of opportunity to more opportunity, from immaturity to maturity, okay? Obviously, it's for growth. Everyone's trying to grow and improve. That's the purpose of life. You know, God made himself creative, and he made us creative. But that means we should transform things to be better. Well, blitzes and crucibles are great examples of things that need to transform from not-so-good- COVID. I didn't want it to go this way. I didn't want to lose all my speeches and not have any men's conferences for this whole last seven months. I didn't want that. But guess what? There are other opportunities that I've found in the midst of it that have been improvements in my life, in my marriage, in my relationship with God, in my content creating, in my coaching of leaders. I've started coaching CEOs and they might reach many people versus the audience I wanted to. So Here's three strategies for facing your crucibles and facing your blitzes, your troubles and trials and problems and unexpected stuff you didn't want to have happen. The first, take a long-term view, not a short-term view. Now you and I have been changed and have found a a lifelong centering relationship with God through the person of Jesus. And so our long-term is eternity, right? Right. This life is pretty cool. There's a lot of good stuff, but we know it's jacked up and imperfect. There's a paradise coming forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That sounds pretty cool. That's God's kingdom. If you take that long-term view, you're really going to make good decisions. If you just take a 10 or 20-year future vision, you might not yell at your wife quite so much, go have an affair, and say, screw this marriage, and blow up your family. Because you're thinking, no, I think grandma and grandpa together would be better for our grandkids than splitting up. Long term view. Begin with the end in mind, Stephen Covey. Number two, you gotta humble yourself instead of being proud. And you have to be willing to change. That's strategy two. You gotta be willing to change. Football players always change the play in the blitz. We don't run the same play because it's not gonna work. We sight adjust, we adapt, we might call an audible, but we gotta change. And many times you have to sacrifice. That's how we beat blitzes. Quarterbacks get hit in the jaw, but they deliver the ball to a receiver who changes his route while all the linemen and running backs are diving in front of 300-pound defenders to sacrifice so the team can win. And the quarterback is on his back when he finds out that the t- touchdown pass just occurred, turning the blitz into the greatest play of the game, and we win. you got to be willing to change. Call a different play. Become more humble. If you talk all the time, shut up and Listen. If you never talk, speak up. If you spend all your money and there's nothing left for the kids' college, start saving, you know? Uh, Change your character. Maybe your faith is what needs to change. Maybe you say you believe in God. You go to church occasionally. uh, You're religious. Why don't you try something different? Just try a relationship with God instead of religion. Whoa. Why don't you try Mm -hmm. trusting him instead of just saying, I believe? Mm -hmm. That might change some things. Why don't you try reading the Bible? and seeing if the greatest book in history of the world can actually change you like it has me. So that's number two, be willing to change. Number three, stop playing the victim and focusing on yourself and very simply focus on others. Bless others. Turn outward. That's your vision. I've heard it in your uh, crucible leadership. Uh, Here's my analogy for it, my friend. It's to be an investor especially in relationships in the summertime they teach the quarterbacks like drew Brees. your responsibility is to throw the football to a one foot diameter of accuracy to the wide receiver not anywhere close I was in practice one day Joe Montana threw a pass to Jerry Rice it hit him right here in the shoulder Jerry turned the ball to the front kept running scored a touchdown and the quarterback coach Mike Holmgren said good throw Joe And our Hall of Fame coach, Bill Walsh, turned to Mike and said, no, it's not. That's not a good throw. That's not good enough. That hit him on his back shoulder. That could bounce off his pads. It might slow him down. He might not get to score. Mike, that ball's got to be right here, one foot diameter of accuracy in front of him so he can keep running. Meanwhile, they're teaching the wide receivers in the summer in the training camp in their own meeting room. Their responsibility is if they can touch the ball wherever it is, they got to catch it. Go up, get hit in the ribs. Be out for eight weeks. We'll see you in the playoffs. We need that catch. Do you hear the mentality, expect much of yourself and little from others and give your best to make them successful. Make it easy for them. Boy, what if husbands were like that with their wife?
2: Mm.
1: What if wives were like that with their husband? You know, all husbands really need is a little bit of respect. Deep down, we're little boys that are just crying out to know, do we have what it takes? Do we measure up? Are we a man? Are we a good man? Right. And and we can handle correction and all sorts of things, but we just, we can't handle it when we don't feel respected.
0: It's it's so true.
1: Meanwhile, poor wives, we husbands, we work our butt off. We buy a nice house. Uh, We get them the car they want. We get the kids into the school they want. We mow the lawn. We do all this stuff. We tell them we provide for them, but guess what? We don't talk to them. We don't share our feelings. We don't open up. We don't ask them questions. We don't stop and pray for them. We don't take them on dates anymore. We take them for granted. We don't cherish them. We don't tell them they're beautiful anymore. We don't apologize to them when we hurt their feelings. Basically, we're not loving them. And I'll tell you what, a woman, her currency is love. And a man's currency is respect. So I'm talking about being a relationship investor. In football, you have to picture quarterbacks serving receivers, receivers serving quarterbacks. In marriage, husbands serving wives, wives serving husbands. In business, CEOs serving the team and the team serving one another and then serving clients. If we had this invest in others, uh, there's a great message that is in the Bible, the book of Philippians, which is a letter Paul wrote to uh, a a small church in in the city of Philippi. He said, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That basically means don't do anything out of selfishness or pride. Well, now that that rules a lot of things out uh, for you and me, doesn't it? It does. But in humility, in an attitude of humility, consider other people more important than yourself. And don't just look out for your interests. Look out for their interests. It's basically saying, don't be a consumer, always worried about yourself, Be an investor. Bless them. Encourage them. Give them the truth. Be kind. Prefer their preference over your own. Apologize first. Forgive first. This is investing. This is relationship investing. And so those three strategies, they'll change your life and they'll change the world. One, take a long-term view. And I recommend you include God in it because he started you. And uh, it's just not wise to ignore someone who is unbelievably perfect, loving, and good, even though this world is jacked up. The reason it's jacked up is because we ran away from God. Number two, be willing to change because you're humble enough to learn and grow and try something different. And number three, why don't you try copying the greatest man that ever lived, Jesus, who didn't come to be served but to serve, and be an investor in your spouse, your son, your rebellious teenage daughter, your estranged brother. Your boss, who's a jerk, tough. Invest in him and the relationship, your employees, your team.
0: Well, there's so many profound things there. I want to talk for a minute about what you're doing now, but just in terms of transitioning to that, I want the listeners to hear there's so many profound things you said this concept of being an investor, not a consumer. And that's a great analogy with you say, with a quarterback wanting sort of this one foot window and receivers, if you can touch it, probably if you, if you can kind of uh, smell it, hear it. <laughs> you know, if, if it's any, close, you got to get it. Right. If it's within a, a, a 10 yard radius or something uh, at the risk of hyperbole, you know, that idea of just investing in others and being willing to change. So true. It's just as we transition to what you're doing now, obviously growing up, you had one model of what it is to be a great person, your dad, you know, politics reaching across the aisles of people of all backgrounds, all races, yes. all pro quarterback, that. incredible human being. And, and my mom.
1: My mom is the unsung hero in the family. Joanne Kemp's, if we if there's a tombstone for her, you should say the power of the personal. She was oh. always personal. Relationships meant everything to her. That's, Go ahead, I didn't mean to cut no, no, to no, no, it. No, 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 it's it. all
0: good. But you obviously had to be willing to change. There was a point in your life we you said, okay, I'm probably not gonna be an all pro quarterback. Maybe I don't wanna be a politician or a senator or president. Somehow you had to be willing to change from not just living your father's vision, or in my case, John Fairfax's vision, the founder. So talk about how did you shift from kind of the football, living up to your dad's vision, to finding your own vision? Because a lot of people are trying to live other people's visions and not their own, in fact, their own God-given vision from our perspective. How did you make that shift, and how did that lead you to what you're doing now?
1: Boy, I'll give a little bit of the story, but the principle that I'd like people to go away with is, you know what? If you really want your ideal purpose and vision and mission and calling and role, go consult the owner's manual and talk to God. Let him define it for you. The culture is jacked up. Your ego is jacked up. Sometimes our advisors are jacked up, as you found out. So go on a journey spiritually and ask the father, your father, what he thinks. But here's how it happened for me. The off seasons had a fair amount of open time because I wasn't getting invited to all the most high profile celebrity golf tournaments like the starting quarterbacks. And uh, so I wanted to use the off season uh, to serve in the community. And I was on a board of directors of something called Pro Athletes Outreach. I learned how to be on an executive committee, how to be on a board. I learned about budgets. I learned about strategy. I cared about ministry. We gave money to Christian charities, and we learned about some of the work that they did. Focus on the family was one of them. Family life was another. And we did stuff in our home to help others, okay? So all of that gave me a vision for helping others, and I loved working in the inner city with kids. And I realized that I can't save the world, and I can't even save that many kids, but I maybe can I can impact a family that'll impact a kid. So that's kind of why I had a vision to go upstream and strengthen marriage and fatherhood, because that can touch a lot of kids. And I'd like to prevent problems more so than just being the bandaid, which is not a fair way to say what loving kids is all about. That's not just a bandaid, but you know what I mean? You got to prevent the breakup of the family, not just try to pick up the pieces. So that was in my head, but in 92, right after my really good year with the Eagles and I signed a big contract, thought I was gonna extend my career for a few years. I was the last guy cut, came home. No one signed me around the league for four weeks. And I was pretty upset. My prayers weren't being answered that I get a new team. And uh, when the Seahawks had a quarterback get hurt and I called the coach to say, I'm in town, please sign me. I was sure this was the answer to my prayer. He left a message and said, sorry, we're gonna sign someone else, good luck, click. And I went out to the front door And despite all this faith and maturity that I've been telling you about, I slammed the door, sat on my front step of my nice home in America, Redmond, Washington, and I started having a pity party. And I said, this isn't fair. This isn't right. God, this stinks. I'm not going to pray. I'm just going to sit here and feel this stinking pain. And I did. I started feeling the pain. This isn't fair. Why am I getting rejected, cut after I've served well and been a good teammate? Um, I just want to finish, you know, positively. Well, my wife came out, Stacy. And we'd been married uh, 10 years by that point. And she said, oh, Jeff, I can't imagine how much this hurts. And I just want to encourage you. We've been through tough things. And God's always been there. He's always cared for us. And he's always had a, a good purpose come out of it. She kind of articulated this principle. And I said, I know that. I'm looking up. I just want to, I know that. Don't tell me that. I just want to finish football with some dignity. In her head, she thought maybe he needs some tough love, not the soft stuff. So she very gently said, you know, as I recall, when, when Jesus Christ walked this earth and he left, he didn't get any dignity. Maybe mm. you need to let go of that desire. Whoa. That was like a barb into my heart. Oh, my gosh. And I looked at her in all my marriage conference speaking maturity as a husband. And I said, maybe you need to go inside. she went inside left me alone and then uh, I think it was God that started speaking to me and I had the worst moment of my life this is prior to my dad's cancer and losing him prior to a nonprofit that I ran uh, getting so behind in money that I had to fire myself those two things hurt but this was the worst crisis blitz I'd ever had losing my career at age 32 and having the bottom drop out realizing more of my identity was wrapped up in it than I'd ever thought so in a matter of seconds, I, I thought about what she said about Jesus. And I started to realize, oh, my gosh, what unbelievable, unconditional, courageous love he's shown for me. He forgave all my sin. He adopted me. He said I can go to heaven, paradise forever. And he's given me this great wife, except for what she just said, and these, these three healthy kids. <laughs> 11, Eleven years of pro football, I didn't deserve any of this. I was a free agent out of Dartmouth. I was a 50 to 1 odds guy. I am whining, wanting more. What a schmuck I am. Most of all, God loves me, and I'm his son. And I started to cry tears of gratitude and joy, and the worst moment of my life became the best spiritual moment. And here's where I get the answer to your question. I heard in my thoughts, in my heart, these words that were penned somewhere by the Apostle Paul, forget what lies behind and press on to what lies ahead.
0: One of my and favorite right there, verses. Oh, my that. gosh.
1: Football was great. It was a gift. Use it as a platform step out of that and go into strengthening fatherhood, marriage, and families. And that's when I began my career search. I thought about corporate speaking, motivational training, a couple different things. But it was pretty clear that this calling to strengthen families was key in my life. And that's what I started doing right away. And it's only morphed into focusing more and more on men and husbands and then leaders who can shape the team and the culture as a way to reach the next generation. Because that's kind of where my stories fit well, with leaders and with men. And then my wife and I do marriage conferences.
0: That's awesome. Well, you have a very clear vision, a clear mission. I know your dad's been gone quite a long time now. Let's assume he's up in heaven. As I think we both believe he is. Yeah. Um Well, you know what? He
1: got cancer late in life. Yeah. And cancer had a blessing in that it finally brought him to his knees and slowed him down and made him realize that the forgiveness of Jesus and the grace of Jesus can cover anything you ever do wrong. And I don't think he ever really understood that before. It was more metaphysical, more of a belief,
0: I understand.
1: Uh, more of a church thing. He could say it, but he didn't feel it in his heart. And I think cancer was used by God as a blitz to draw my dad into that personal relationship. So I know That he's with God, with Jesus in heaven.
0: As he's looking down at you and your life of what you've done and what you're doing now for marriages and um, men and kids, what do you think he would say about your vision and how you're seeking to live his construct of lift, of life is for, for transformation? What do you think he would say about the man you are now and what you're doing in your ministry and all?
1: Well, my dad did a good job with Jennifer and Juth and and Jimmy and I of showing his pride, showing his love, kissing us, affection, hugs, approval. He'd brag about us and tell all sorts of stories in his speeches about his kids. But I know that he was particularly pleased at our faith and particularly pleased at my marriage and my fathering. And I think he was really proud and he was a financial investor in our nonprofit work to strengthen families. And so he believed in it. But I think he probably, with all the new insight he has up in heaven, he'd probably say, you were a really good Kemp, but way more importantly, I think you understood that you were a child and a son of the king and the perfect father, and you've really been a good ambassador for him. And I'm proud of that. And more importantly, God's proud of that. And uh, I, I really am thankful for the fact that you let God get a hold of your life and you let him use you to show others that God is love, that family is important, that marriage matters, and that men should be humble servants, not cocky performers. So dad would be very happy, very proud, very complimentary. We've had our little debates and stuff. Sometimes he thinks I'm too intense, which is funny because he was pretty intense.
0: <laughs> now that's funny. You know, that's
1: but I, I can't wait to be with my dad again. That, well, that'll be
0: awesome. That's great. I mean, and as we kind of wrap up here, for me, um, my dad was a bit more, um, yeah, I have more of an evangelical faith. His faith was a bit more ecumenical. But um, when I look at uh, him, certainly the founder of the company, John Fairfax, yeah, I didn't do the whole newspaper business deal. It wasn't my vision. But in terms of how he led his life as a father, as a husband, the way he treated other people, those elements, yeah, I mean, to the degree I can, I, you know, want to emulate that, and I know you, the same way. So, you know, we don't have we don't have to copy the, the vision of our fathers or ancestors, but those who are believers, uh, there are certain things we can copy: how they treat people, how they treat their wives and kids, and um, yeah, that's really uh, you know what it's all about—not how much yeah, you man. achieve or your bank account or Or, you know, how many books you sell or how many people listen to your speeches. I mean, that's all like dust uh, compared to what's really important. So, um, yeah, it's it's always good to remember.
1: (laughs) Mother Teresa said that her definition of success is being faithful.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Faithful means you take the gifts that God gives you and you steward them as if they belong to him and you're just taking great care of them. And sometimes we're supposed to multiply them and let things get really big, but we're never supposed to do it in a way that skips over the relationship of the soul and person you're talking to at the moment. So if your business is pulling you away from your marriage and your kids, you're not being faithful. And if your ministry, Mr. Pastor or Mr. Churchy Mm -hmm. guy, uh, is taking you away from humility and loving your wife and your kids or your spouse, that isn't necessarily being faithful. So I don't, I don't need to be a superstar.
0: No, it comes back to what you said earlier is, is where is your identity? Is it in how many touchdowns you're scoring or how much, you know, where you are in your career, your bank account, or even in the world of church, how big your church is, you right. know, um, it's, you know, is it in what you believe for us, our, our faith in Christ, for others, it may be some other uh, belief system, but, you know, is your identity and what you believe hold most dear in life? Or is it about achievement? You know, success and achievement is okay, but you don't want to worship it.
1: Oh, that's, that's the point. Yeah. Don't let anything, even good things get in the way of loving God. And uh, I I like the phrase, let's live from our identity, which we receive from God in relationships, rather than living for our identity to try to earn it. That's a losing equation. We can look at all the Hollywood and athlete and famous business people, celebrities. It hasn't worked out. That, for that's them.
0: a path to misery, not happiness. Uh, We don't want to go there.
2: This is the time in the show that I normally say it's time to land the plane. I've been waiting all episode to say, (laughs) no, it's not time to land the plane. It's the two minute warning. Um, (laughs) And I would be uh, guilty of throwing an interception before the two minute warning, Jeff, if I did not give you the chance to tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and about the Jeff Kemp
1: group. Okay. thanks. First, let me say thank you. To you, Gary, great job, and Warwick, and uh, Kat, uh, uh, this concept of crucible leadership. I agree with it 100%. We're on the same page. And you're using your story and humility, and you're lifting others. And I'm a believer. Jeff Kemp Team is my platform for public speaking, men speaking, particularly conferences and retreats where I bring faith and identity and purpose and relationships front and foremost. And then I do CEO soul coaching. I call it soul coaching. It's not just executive coaching. It's not just mentoring. It'll touch on strategy. It'll touch on team building. It may go very deep in those areas. And I have some experience to draw upon, but it's going to start with your identity, your soul, your relationships, both vertical relationships and horizontal relationships. Uh, And then it's going to address How do you receive guidance when everyone's saying you're the boss? Are you humble enough to get guidance from God and from others? Do you have friends? Are you protected or have you moved too far to where you're isolated like many leaders become? Isolation has been America's problem. and In some cases, COVID has made it worse. So Jeff Kemp team is basically speaking, messaging, conferences. I put on some of my own men's retreats, but the real core is the CEO soul coaching. And how do they find you online? I just go to the website, jeffkempteam.com. Okay. Jeffkempteam.com. And uh, there's a book site called facingtheblitz.com. That's really the place. My phone number is even on there. I believe in relationship. If someone needs to get a hold of me, they can give me a call or send me an email.
2: Awesome. Well, Warwick, any final question for Jeff?
0: Uh... I just, maybe a uh, observation, I just love what you're doing, Jeff, facing the Blitz. I mean, we may use different terms, but um, there was something that you wrote here that was, uh, it's so similar to what we talk about on Crucible Leadership. You write, the Blitz is not the end of the story. It's only the catalyst to a greater one. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we use almost the same words. You know, the Crucible is not the end of the story. As Carrie will probably say here in a bit, (laughs) exactly. So uh, yeah, wait a minute or two, and you'll hear it. But no, I I just love how you forged your own path, coming from a famous father, and uh, you've got your own mission, your own vision that's that's yours, and you've got your identity and a higher purpose, a higher cause, in the Lord. And so. Yeah, I just love what you do and your book and so much of what you wrote resonated just humbly talking about it. So many things in there make so much sense, but you're right as you're humble and vulnerable about what you've been through. You allow other people and especially men who seem to have a particularly difficult time about being vulnerable and perhaps humble. You allow yes. them to walk into that space. So, you know, you lead by example, which is what leaders do. So, I love your book and what your ministry is doing. And so, yeah, it's just an honor to just chat with you and hear about it. So thank you.
1: My exhortation to all our listeners, uh, women and men, and men particularly, is friendship is a wonderful thing. Don't get too busy for friendship. Secondly, you know you shouldn't go alone, but few of us build a team to go through life as a team. You cannot beat blitzes alone. You can't get through the crucible alone. So you got to build your team ahead of time. I call it a huddle, Mm Orc. I have two best friends and we meet every week and we drop our guard, disclose what's going on in our life, talk about the most important thing. Uh, We admit and confess the areas where we blew it, uh, our mistakes, our weaknesses, our sins. uh, And then we're set free from that. And then we pray for each other and we support each other and we champion each other. Um, I actually have two groups like that. One that does it by Zoom with some guys across the country and one that does it right here in Little Rock where I live. And I enjoy friendship and I enjoy the huddle and I enjoy teamwork. And I would encourage everyone, build a team in your life. Maybe get a mentor, but get two or three closest friends who you can drop your guard and be real with and uh, process your crucible, process your blitz with them and you'll be set free from the isolation, secrecy and the shame
2: that a lot of people live in. Well, I have been in the communications business long enough to know that the clock now reads zero, zero, zero. That was the last word right there. Let me end though for the listener with three takeaways I think that this discussion um, between Jeff and Warwick uh, has brought. Number one is your identity is not in your accomplishments. It is not in your job title. It's not in your family history. We've talked here today to men whose fathers were known as Mr. Secretary and Sir Warwick. It's not in your popularity or your image either, your identity. Learn the lessons of your crucible. Be honest and humble enough to acknowledge where you may have gone wrong. Then get up from your blitz and press on. That's point one. Point two, think of life as an opportunity to lift Life is for transformation, from proud to humble, as Jeff said, from selfish to humble, from immaturity to maturity, from not so good to better. Lean into the lift. And finally, number three, focus on others. Bless them. Be an investor in relationships. Live life on purpose with your eyes, not on yourself. That is, let's mash up the language of both our host and our guest today. (laughs) <laughs> by that is a playbook that leads to significance thank you for spending time with us on Beyond the Crucible listener Warwick and I have a little favor to ask you uh, feel, uh, please do click subscribe on the podcast app on which you're listening right now that will ensure that you don't miss any episodes like this uh, fascinating conversation we had with Jeff Kemp today uh, it will also uh, help us make sure that other people get access to interviews like this. And uh, until the next time we're together, do remember what we've talked about for the last um, hour. Uh, Do remember this truth, that your crucible is not the end of your story. Your blitz is not something you can't get up from. They both can be the starting point to a new chapter in your life to a better chapter in your life, to a more fulfilling chapter in your life. Because bouncing back from your crucible and getting up and moving beyond your blitz is a path that leads to a life of significance.